Hello and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 48. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Martha Sweezy, author, therapist, and professor at Harvard Medical School. She is the author of this month's book, Internal Family Systems Therapy for Shame and Guilt. So thanks, Martha, for, uh, for writing this book and agreeing to be on the podcast today. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Um, so one thing that a lot of people don't know about IFS that I think you state pretty clearly from the beginning is this notion of multiplicity. Um, and the quote I have here is, the psyche social system includes numerous separate centers of motivation with different points of view who communicate by way of feelings, sensations, and thoughts. Does that feel like, uh, to skeptic, skeptics out there or folks who aren't aware of the model, does that feel like a digestible way of kind of explaining this point of view? I would say the most digestible way for people to get this perspective is to try it out, have the experience. And that's mm -hmm. pretty simple to do. It, it requires sort of turning your attention inside, noticing a thought, a feeling, or a sensation, and getting curious about it and seeing, uh, sort of asking, what would you like me to know? And then listening seeing what comes yeah it kind of makes me wonder like how and I, I know different traditions of buddhism or mindfulness are more interested in, in investigation than others but like how is it the case that for so many folks that have spent so many so much time sitting on cushions in caves haven't arrived at conclusions similar to folks like you or dick schwartz Ah, uh, that answer is beyond me. I mean, I would assume lots of them have come to the conclusion that they have an inner life that's full of lively activity and uh, um, that they can listen in and notice. But they also, some traditions, and I'm no expert in this, but some traditions uh, or many traditions of, of meditation are like pay attention to it, but don't interact with it. And the difference here with IFS is that we're very much engaging in interaction with these parts. Yeah, and I guess um, since IFS or similar kinds of healing work really benefits from having a second person um, holding the space, it maybe lends itself more to figuring out these kinds of systems than someone just sitting alone uh, meditating. Well, yeah, and, and I think um, the reason that can be for some people is because some of what you're going to come across internally is information or uh, experiences, memories of experiences that were unpleasant or scary. And it's hard to visit those without a sense of backup, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to translate that into IFS terms, be something like the the parts holding these burdens don't feel connected enough to like the the client self, and they need, as you said, backup some someone else in the room. Well, to to be even more um, explicit, I I don't know if everyone who's listening to this is going to understand uh, what we're talking about with IFS. That there, the assumption. Um, is that we're going to find uh, 
parts, uh, parts being like subpersonalities, and internally, some of whom, um, when a, when a part has been hurt, or you know, insulted, injured, um, rejected in some way, uh, hurt, then other parts. Uh, begin to take on jobs around that hurt part to protect it and contain it, contain its negative feelings, um, its belief that there's something wrong with me, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, I'm uh, no good. And um, the parts around the part who feels that way are distracting from that or trying to soothe that in some way. And on top of that kind of configuration of parts being very active, we also have uh, another resource. Everybody has this other resource, which um, in IFS is called the self. In Buddhism, it might be called the Buddha mind or wise mind, um, which is a very different um, uh, sort of center of, of feelings that are uh, like uh, compassion um, and uh, curiosity uh, and, a, and a whole bunch of other sort of very open-hearted and, and uh, safe uh, feeling uh, states of being. So um, when you have, can access both of those, when you can access that, that place in yourself that is centered and uh, courageous and curious and compassionate, you can then help parts who are in that place of being afraid and hiding uh, injuries. And so that's the kind of IFS approach to what's going on inside when someone's in distress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for setting some context for us. I think that's important. So I have a ton of questions for you from the book, but I, I am curious about this intersection between mindfulness and IFS. And I saw you use the phrase loving kindness a couple of times. How, how, what kind of background do you have in that tradition? Um, you know, I mean, I've done a certain amount of reading and a little meditating, but I'm not, I'm no expert in it. And it's not really been my, um, my focus. Okay. I'll save those questions then for yeah. uh, my, my own daydreaming. Cool. So I think one of the things that really stands out in the book is um, a seeming novel contribution to the world of IFS, at least to me, is this shame cycle that you split into six parts, uh, especially this sort of counterintuitive idea that your managers, which in the world of IFS are these uh, protective parts, will take on the job of shaming themselves, uh, not, not shaming themselves, they themselves are shaming uh, another part similar to, in some cases, um, maybe older people in, in a client's life at the time that um, some, something difficult happened. Can you speak a little bit about the shame cycle as you uh, describe it in the book? Um, yeah. Sure. Um, the, the shame cycle, and I, and I got this from years of, of, um, you know, inquiring with patients into clients, into their internal experience and my own internal inquiries. Um, and it's, it became clear to me that 
um, that when when an <clears throat> when an external mostly this begins with some kind of external injury and and uh, the external injury can include uh, an illness uh, or an accident but usually it's interpersonal and none of us get through childhood without uh, bumps in the road you know sometimes they're very big bumps and a child has been uh, terrorized or um, misused in some way. But even if that's not the case, uh, we all have uh, circumstances where um, somebody is being a pretty big challenge and somebody is saying, you know, could be a peer, could be an adult, um, could be a sibling, is um, in some way... Uh, engaged in a power struggle with you, uh, engages you in a way that is a put down um, and tries to um, get power over you with, uh, with some kind of um, insult to who you are and not what you did, but who you are. You are to this, you are to that. You're not enough this, you're not enough that. And it's a way for that person who's engaging in that behavior to feel uh, bigger and more powerful than the child who is the, the target of this behavior. But the child who is, that, who is targeted with that behavior may be vulnerable to it and may not be, but there's, we're always vulnerable to something. So something's going to land somewhere along the way. Um, you know, if I have a big feet and my sister or brother tease me about that. If I don't mind having big feet, it's fine. I'm not, it's not going to be particularly injuring, but if I, if I do feel that having big feet is in some way shameful and I'm therefore I'm being caught out with some defect and they've noticed it, then I'm going to have a part who feels injured about my body. And that way who begins to want to hide my big feet um, and other parts who begin to come in and distract from the feeling of I'm not good enough because it's hard to go on with life if you feel you're not good enough. So, so, so the, what we call the protective system of, of parts who kind of volunteer to step into these roles to uh, as saviors basically to keep life moving along and make life bearable those protectors, some of them are proactive. They jump in right away. And those, what you were just calling managers, uh, those parts are often critics. I, 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 you know, I've spoken to large groups of people and I'll say, how many people in this room have an inner critic? And everybody raises their hand. So it's a pretty ubiquitous, it's a ubiquitous uh, experience having it can be mild, it can be very severe, uh, but some parts who are in there who are trying to, you know, get you into shape so that you're lovable, acceptable, included in socially, and that you do what you have to do to function in life. And we need our managers, but we don't need them to be harsh. And uh, if you have been, if they feel there's a part of you that endangers uh, the whole system, 
they will begin to be quite harsh often with that part. If only you were this, or if only you didn't do that, or why don't you shut up, or why don't you improve? So they get to work um, with this project of hiding and improving uh, these supposed defects so that you are socially acceptable. And, and that's a lot of inhibition and response to all that inhibition, which often comes in the form of shaming internally, um, which has been in response to an external experience of having been shamed. There's a cycle that gets going. The first two kind of elements chronologically in that cycle are the inter the interaction or experience that uh, caused this insult to land um, and stick in the in, internally, and, and so that's the receptivity or the vulnerability to it, and the experience itself, and then this cycle of protective parts who get going um, with their various actions of trying to handle that information. And uh, the, there, are, there are proactive protectors who, do, who are critical and judgmental and do a lot of shaming. And there are also proactive protectors who try to watch out. I call them scout parts. They kind of watch out for uh, future uh, situations in which it could happen again. So they're very inhibiting also. They'll say, don't do this, don't do that, do be this, don't do that. You know, So they're very active in terms of warning. Um, and with all that inhibition uh, that goes on, it's dangerous in the long run. It can actually lead to suicide, a suicide part. Um, uh, showing up and saying, well, I can, I can help with this. If, this. if this is unbearable, if it's unbearable being you and you're not going to be acceptable, then I can, I've got a way out of this. And there are other parts who, of course, don't want that. And they are more disinhibited and they will come in with uh, a different kind of solution. Well, you know, if, if, if the critic has been blasting you all day and you get home from school or work or whatever, you're an adult, um, there's a part of say, just have a drink, you know, we um, have another drink or eat a gummy or turn the TV on and, and get some food and start eating and watch TV. And so, you know, there are these parts who are more disinhibited, who start to try to balance out all that inhibition and harshness with uh, distractions and uh, things that are soothing in the very uh, short run that work extremely well to turn off uh, the critic. And those things, of course, become costly if they, if they become extreme over time. And then that just ramps up the critic on the other side of it again. And, it, and you get into a, a sort of... Um, uh, infinity eight cycle where uh, the the uh, the the critical team, the proactive critical team, is um, motivating a reactive disinhibited team, which motivates the critical team, and they're kind of stuck in a cycle. And on on top of the the sort of possibility of of this internal 
infinity cycle going on, there's also uh, almost inevitably a part who may be quite hidden most of the time, but who will come out at some point who's also reactive and disinhibited, who will take it out on other people. Mm. And that part is a part who kind of tosses the hot potato and says, you know, no, you're the one who's shameful, not me. Um, and adults do that with children, spouses do it with each other, partners do it with each other often, uh, people in positions of authority are at risk of doing this with people who, um, who they have power over. So it's a big temptation for protective parts um, to uh, keep it moving, you know, keep that. And, and in that way, shame becomes a verb. It's a, it's a viral um, phenomenon that is not just some, you know, dark cloud that follows us around uh, and as a kind of a noun. It's more, it's always an action. There's shaming, between interpersonal shaming and then shaming inside, which goes out again to the interpersonal uh, field and then uh, gets passed on to somebody else. So it's a phenomenon that puts uh, us all at risk socially as well as internally. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for taking us through that. So these these parts that these firefighters that sometimes show up to sort of toss the hot potato of shame outward, can that be understood as a kind of soothing, similar to like the one that might have you watch TV or or eat something? It's sweet? a different. It is a it is a kind of soothing, but it's um, in that rage and um, and anything, you know, the sort of anger and rage that make you feel bigger and more powerful are soothing. They're, it feels safer to be bigger and more powerful rather than weak and shameful, right? Mm -hmm. So these parts are coming in with a kind of energetic uh, dose that's the opposite of the energy that goes with feeling shameful, which is a kind of collapse, uh, lack of energy. And so anger and shamefulness, shaming and shamefulness are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, and I know the subtitle of the book or the, the title is that it's for shame and guilt, but I feel like this maybe describes the entire mechanism of like exiles taking on burdens, but maybe that's not the case. Are there situations in which some tra traumatized part of us isn't there because they feel not enough or too much or defective in some way? Well, not in my experience. I mean, well, I will say this. There are some, sometimes, very occasionally, you come across uh, a part who has been tucked away uh, because the circumstances were dangerous uh, in childhood, and that part is still quite innocent. It's like been put in a bubble, and it's just playing with a toy or something, and it doesn't it's, it's absolutely unaware of the danger around it. It's been protected um, in the, its innocence has been protected. So those parts, when you find a part like that, that part does not feel there's something wrong with me, but the protectors around it are definitely burdened with that kind of belief. Um, usually, however, you'll find the message has reached all the way 
down to the most vulnerable parts of a person's system. And the conclusion those parts came to is, as children do conclude, because they're very self-referential in their way of understanding the world, they conclude, I, there's something wrong with me that this has happened to me. I am uh, problematic, defective. I have burdened somebody else. I am too much. I am bad. I am evil. Um, those kinds of, of beliefs. And they're often told that by if there's an abusive adult uh, in their sphere, they've often been told that in a very explicit way. This is your fault that I'm behaving this way. You're making me do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this finally firmly answers the question for me why children take on these beliefs. And it, it, I think you describe in the book why why they are so self-referential, but can you remind me? I, I can't remember if you if you. Yeah, I mean, me. little kids. What do they know? You know, they don't have the perspective that uh, we can get as adults uh, of seeing what motivates other people um, and seeing that the behavior, somebody else's behavior, is has to do with what's going on inside of them. It does not. It, it may be uh, queued up by something I do, but. Uh, they have a choice about how they behave. Whereas for a child, um, the children just, for one thing, it allows them to feel a little more control. If it's all about me, then maybe I can do something to change it or or get in control of this. And they they make an effort to do that. They try very hard. If life is dangerous, they'll try all kinds of tactics to that help them survive, um, which uh, help the, in which they're trying to get some control. But un, the unfortunate side effect of that is that they actually have this belief that they're causing the problem. Um, you know, an example I give in the book is that uh, comes from the '60s when there was a blackout in New York City and the subways stopped functioning and there were sirens and everyone was in a panic because this had never happened before. And there was a little boy walking home from school at the same time that the blackout happened. He had a stick and he was hitting the lamp poles, the street lights with his stick. And then suddenly all the lights in, in his portion of the city went out. And he heard, he went home and he heard all these terrible things that happened and the grown-ups were all upset. And he believed that he was responsible for killing all the lights in the city by hitting this, uh, this uh, light uh, with his stick. And he stopped speaking because he was so mortified at the thing he had done. And it took, uh, his parents couldn't figure it out. And they finally took him to a psychologist who got it out of them and, and they were able to correct his understanding of things, but, but he was just a kid. That was his perspective. You know, um, it's, he did not have the big picture. He wasn't, as, as I say to my clients, these parts are not playing with a full deck of cards and they have, um, a limited self-referential perspective and they try to get some control over things that they can't control by believing that they're responsible for them. And that's one way in which kids get parentified very easily too. 
Um, you know, if I can, if you're, if I have a dysfunctioning parent who can't parent me, uh, if I start taking care of that parent, maybe they'll be then able to take care of me. And the child gets drawn into a role of uh, caretaking and role reversal that can be quite startling to witness. Yeah, that's one of the one of the things on my list I wanted to ask you about. What is what is the trouble with that of putting a kid in that position where they have to be responsible for an adult's happiness or well being or Yeah. What is not the trouble with that would be the apt question, you know. <laughs> okay. Uh kids are not adults. They're not cap they're not supposed to be taking care of adults and they can't do it. And they don't have the authority. They don't have the, the cognition. Um, they don't have the power. They don't have the money. They don't have anything. They're just little kids who are supposed to be exploring the world and playing and being s held in an environment that's safe enough so that they can be curious and learn and, and find out who they are and what their interests are. And instead, all that gets hijacked by the needy parts of an adult who didn't get parented, who didn't get adequate parenting. And so if it gets quite it can get quite complicated in that the parent has the this the nominal caretaker has protective parts who recruit the child to take care of the adult's young parts who are who are needy. And there's a woman named Carlin Lyons Ruth, who is a researcher at Harvard, who's done uh, remarkable research, prospective, means it's, she's followed people for years, uh, parent-child uh, pairs who came into her lab repeatedly and were filmed. And um, there are these, there's this interim period between when they're being um, interviewed. It's like the person would come with the baby and then come in a few years later again with the kid and a few years later. And I, there's one video, which you, you can see if she's giving a talk, you can't see it on YouTube. Um, but uh, if you have a chance to hear her talk, it's really worth going to it. There's a child and a mother sitting in this uh, play space and the chair, there are little kid chairs and a table with lots of toys on it. And the mother is sitting at the table and the child who's about five years old is standing next to her, handing her toys. And she puts an Etch-a-Sketch in front of her mother and says, would you like this? You want to play with this? And the mother shoves it away and goes, no. <laughs> and the child gets another toy and puts it in front of her mother. And the role reversal could not be uh, more glaring. Hmm. Is this real? Oh, go. Were you, were you finished with that thought? Well, just that it doesn't work out well. It doesn't work out well for the child because they have the the part who the parentified part who is trying to take care of the mother is um, is too young to do that of course, and is burdened with this terrible sense of responsibility. And I ought to be able to control this adult who is, of course, not in control of themselves. And uh, so the child, and the meanwhile, the child is, 
is suffering severe neglect because her needs or his needs are not being met, their needs, uh, where, and they're not really able to meet the, the caretaker's needs either. So it's a terrible position to be in. And as that person grows up, their caretaker part, their young manager part wears out eventually. And this is something you'll often see with people who have come to therapy with some kind of trauma history where they were extremely high functioning, doing great until they hit a wall at some point when something that was just one crisis too far, one thing that was beyond the ability of this young manager part to handle occurred and there's a collapse and the person ends up in the hospital or they end up in therapy and they can't figure out how they went from high functioning to feeling like they can barely get out of bed. Um, and it's because of that young manager part just collapses under the weight of, of adult responsibilities and uh, not understanding the world and trying too hard, working too hard, and gives up and kind of um, becomes depressed. And, uh, and then there's nobody there internally to, there's no, there's no grown up who has taken over as this child grew up because they, there was no input. They, the kid did not have the resources from adults who were taking care of her. And people like that will often say, I don't even want to brush my teeth. I don't want to, I don't feed myself well. Um, because there's a very young part who's like, I need someone to take care of me. Where is, who's going to do that? And there's nobody there. And in IFS, we're saying actually, there is somebody there, there is an adult in you, there is a, what we call a self, who has these other resources, and we can uh, bring that person into the picture internally to shore up, to strengthen and um, heal this system that has been so uh, distorted by the injuries of, of other people's needs. Hmm, yeah. Thank goodness for the self. Right, exactly. But it can be a very hard thing for people who haven't experienced that and who've had a lot of trauma to believe that they have the resources themselves um, because their parts were so overwhelmed by what happened to them. So it can take time, which is fine. You know. Yeah. So I'm curious if this notion of parentification is connected to something else that you spend some time on in the book, which is, I don't know if the right word is like the dangers of empathy or the dysfunction of empathy, but how some of our young, maybe exiled parts sort of start empathizing with with other people. And, and um, I, I have a note where you, where you, I think you write that it's it can be ironic that some folks who have like similar exiled burdens uh, often kind of won't get along um, mm -hmm. because maybe there's like too much empathy going on. Or is there, there's that example of the teenager you were working with who uh, suffered similar trauma to her best friend. And so they were kind of getting into it. it. Can you speak a little bit about empathy? Yeah. Um, Tanya Singer, who is a compassion researcher in Germany, um, did a uh, an, uh, an MRI study of, a uh, monk named Mathieu Ricard, who 
I was a very experienced monk and he was, he meditated while she, while in the MRI machine. And first he had empathy. First he watched a, a very disturbing film about orphans in um, Romania, I think it was. And then he empathized with them uh, while in the machine. And she was taking a look at what was going on in his brain. Um, and he, empathy is, I feel with you. So he joined with their suffering, and which he was very capable of doing, being a, a highly experienced meditator. And then he, he switched over to compassion, and he had compassion for them. And compassion, empathy is, I feel with you. Compassion is, I feel for you. So uh, when he switched to compassion, um, actually a completely different part of his brain lit up. So that was a big surprise to everybody. In the When he was empathizing with pain, the neural pain pathways lit up in his brain. When he was feeling compassion for these children, reward pathways lit up in his brain so that it was... Um, it was extremely painful for him to empathize with them, but it was not painful to have compassion for them. Uh, he was, he cared about them. He was concerned about them, but he wasn't personally in a lot of pain with that. And, um, and it was therefore uh, more energizing for him to have compassion for these kids than it was to have empathy. So what I see a lot of um, in when I'm doing IFS therapy, is uh, people, say, people who have, I've worked with a lot of people who've been very traumatized, and often they have a surprising amount of empathy for adults who were being abusive toward them. So they have a real mixed reaction. They'll have parts who are angry with, uh, with the, the person who treated them that way, and they'll also have parts who identify not with the misbehavior, but with the pain that that adult was reacting to internally. So to put that in IFS language, the adult who's misbehaving has exiled parts also who are hurting, who have been injured, and they have a rageful part who is distracting from that pain by picking on this child or in some way exploiting this child. And the child's parts um, are aware, are empathizing at the same time that they're being mistreated. They're actually empathizing with the adults' hurt parts, and uh, so they will get. It's very confusing for the child to both have empathy for the for the the vulnerability and pain of someone who is mistreating them, and to be angry with that person and scared of them. Um, and so what I talk about in the book is, um, you know, we're not going to be that empathy is just something that we do. We're all good at it. Um, our young parts are particularly empathic and that's not a bad thing, but it's a very vulnerable thing if they're taking the lead and what we really want and what we're doing in IFS therapy is, sort of rearranging the, the leadership internally so that 
the this uh, what we call a self, which is this presence internally, who leads with compassion, can give some containment to that empathy, and and hold you know then um, make sure if I'm leading with myself, I'm, I'm much more capable of being safe in relationships than I'm if I'm leading with uh, a combination of parts who are empathizing with somebody else's pain and, uh, and will put up with that, their misbehavior as a result, and parts who then also get enraged and angry and lash out as a result of putting up with that uh, misbehavior. So, um, I need my, if myself is present, I'm much more capable of understanding that the other person is suffering, but not allowing them to behave abusively toward me and to be able to protect myself and call on them to do better than that uh, or stay away from them rather than um, getting in a position where I feel responsible for them because they're suffering. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think in in the book, there's an example of uh, someone in a relationship whose partner is uh, addicted to something, and the client is having trouble drawing boundaries, perhaps, or sticking up for himself, given that he has these this mixture of sort of caretaking or parentified parts that are like working really hard to sort of save this person or help them. Right. Um, in a kind of unhealthy. He feels guilty. He has a part who tells him he ought to be rescuing this person um, at his own expense. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting, just in the tone of the book, is that, and, and it's, it's probably the case in other places, but there's this notion in IFS of like all parts being welcome. And that's mm-hmm. certainly the case here in this book. But I feel like your attitude towards some of the parts and their shortcomings is like a little more explicit than I've seen in other areas. Like, I guess um, you mentioned in the book that when you encounter critics, you ask them like how good of a job they're doing or maybe with some other managers helping them see the limits of their activity. I wonder if there is any, any tension there in how we approach parts as sort of being super open and welcome and compassionate versus holding, I don't know, holding their feet to the fire is the right thing to say, but at least being objective about what's working and what's not like Mm -hmm. in a clinical setting. Well, what I would say is it takes a lot of trust to, um, to really welcome these parts because some of them are, threatening, you know, they may be threatening suicide, they may be threatening uh, in the sense of just doing, engaging in destructive behaviors like uh, various extreme addiction behaviors or eating disorder behaviors or or raging at other people or whatever. And uh, some of these parts can make it, you know, the, the reactive, what you would call firefighter parts, which is the name that Dick Schwartz gave to them because They'll knock down the house to put out the fire, you know, the emotional fire. So these are parts who, uh, the really reactive extreme parts who 
don't who will not cop to caring about consequences. They'll their goal is to stop that feeling right now and they'll do whatever they whatever they have to to do that. So those parts can be can take some patience and uh, kindness and trust uh, that they actually are trying to help out and that their motives are good and that if they're given, if you, if we in therapy can really address their fears and their concerns, that they will not want to be destructive. This is not their goal to be destructive. It's their goal to survive. And that, and if we try to prevent them and and vilify them or or pathologize them, they they with good reason think we don't get it, we don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So the more um, we can help our manager parts who can get scared of these parts, understandably, to step back a little and let us with our curiosity and compassion and courage take the lead with these parts, the more they will come forward with us in response, not, you know, not, they have to know that we're not trying to control them, um, but that we are genuinely um, have something to offer that's better than what they're doing. And because what they're doing is really hard and scary, actually. Um, you know, people don't want to die, but often they're engaging in behaviors that will kill them either slowly or, or quickly. And they don't, they don't want that. None of their parts want that. And we have to trust that and trust that um, they're good. They mean well, they have good intentions, and they, they, want, they want options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. But that's me, that's me helping my parts who get nervous, right? I really have to be able to help my parts um, let me take the lead because my parts can get pretty nervous if, some, if someone's... And, and of course, if someone says, I'm, when I walk out of here, I'm killing myself, then, then sometimes I might, you know, it hadn't happened to me, but I might then say, you know, I actually can't let you kill her or him. It's not that's not a good idea. We can, we can do better than that. I promise. Uh, and so right now you got to go to the hospital. Uh, you know, doesn't happen that often, but it's off certainly a possibility sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed there's a couple occasions, not, not many, but there's a couple occasions in some of the dialogues where the IFS hat sort of comes off and then the, you being just a person in the world comes on and you like explain something, from mm-hmm. some like reasonable point of view to the client or whomever is listening. Yeah. Um, but so. I guess what I'm saying is that is the IFS, that's still the IFS hat. In other words, being compassionate does not mean uh, being uh, sort of letting a part who's going to be violent towards the, the person or somebody else just do whatever it wants. That's not compassionate, actually. Um, if you can't make a deal with a part like that because it's so overwrought, then you have to offer some kind of uh, safety and containment. And as I say, if you generally, if you have a relationship with a person for long enough and you've befriended these parts, you don't get to that place anymore. But I worked, um, you know, in clinics and hospitals where I would, and I was on call, someone would come in 
in a big crisis and they, I didn't have a relationship with their parts. I didn't, this was actually before I was doing IFS, but I didn't, they didn't know me. I didn't know them under those circumstances. It's much harder to make a deal with a part who's in an extreme place. It can be done, but if you know what you're doing, but, but it, it, it may not be possible in which case that person needs some help to stay alive, to get to the other side of the crisis. And, and then be able to, to do to do this internal inquiry and help their own parts. Mm. It seems like, um, given that you've done this for quite a while, and you know you're writing books about it, and you, that you're very confident um, in the sessions. Like a lot of times, or s- some of the time, you'll say to a client when approaching an exile, say something like, "Well." Uh, we can help, you know, like uh, help is, is possible or what, what would you be interested in, in giving us some space if you knew that like we can take, like uh, apply something to this hurt such that you don't have to work so hard. Like, I feel like there's a confidence there when you're in the therapy seat that maybe newer practitioners would feel more sheepish about, like not necessarily offering a guarantee, but some uh, vision for what's about to happen or what is possible. Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of something, it's a paradox you kind of have to live with as you're learning IFS because um, I am very confident now, but I wasn't in the beginning. Um, and so, you know, Dick Schwartz calls this being a hope merchant, but it's harder to be, it's, you can't really be a good hope merchant if you don't actually feel it yourself. So the more experience you have under your belt, the more confident you're going to become. That, uh, and in the beginning, you're sort of borrowing some confidence, um, and it may take you longer to, to kind of negotiate that with parts because parts are hypersensitive to whether that's genuine or not. They need to know that you know what you're doing, not in terms of you know knowing what their story is or what's important for them, but knowing how things work, how systems, internal systems work. They need to know that you get that. Speaking of the word work, there's an interesting section of the book where you try to replace that word with something Mm -hmm. else, I guess, especially for clients who are coming in with their managers who are trying to get stuff done. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I've come in, and again, this is, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to manage to banish the word work entirely. I just used it. I could have used the word function um, just as well. Uh, But one of the things that that I am mindful about um, is um, you replacing the word work with uh, words like inquiry um, and exploration and checking things out and stuff like that, because we are mostly we're, uh, in, engaged with very young parts when we're um, doing this. Eventually, sometimes they're teenagers, sometimes they're in their 20s or 30s, but often as you wor- when you work your way down to the you know, turtle at the bottom of the pile, the yurtle down there at the bottom, it's, um, it's a young part who got hurt in some way um, at, in terms of their identity. You know, you are something wrong. Um, and that part, 
is a kid and and doesn't need to work. You know, we don't need these young parts who are circling around vulnerable parts and around in, and trying to handle injury to be working. We need them to stop working and go play. We need them to feel safe enough to allow uh, the self to come back into the picture and um, and bring those resources in and have older parts who are perfectly capable of handling a lot of things in life take over so that you don't have a five-year-old who's trying to take care of everybody or an eight-year-old who is uh, trying to um, uh, whatever, stop you from feeling feelings. Um, so, so you want to get these little kids off the hook. Uh, and you don't want them working. And so I try to not use the word work about therapy. It's mm-hmm. not work. It's an inquiry. And uh, we have as much playfulness and humor and um, and sort of uh, curiosity in our explorations as possible rather than work. You know, these, these parts have already been working too long, too hard. They shouldn't be working. Um, they, we need to get them out of that position. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a lot of different techniques in the book. I mean, there's there's so much in this book, uh, you know, we, we certainly won't be able to get to. And I think a single read of it, especially for someone who's trying to practice IFS, you know, would be insufficient. Um, one one that sort of caught my eye that I thought was interesting and maybe requires a little bit of time is uh, what what is the U-turn? How does that work? Yeah, the U-turn is uh, a great um, uh, way of proceeding in therapy. Basically, it's a it's 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 an invitation. When I have a feeling about, if say, if I come in and I say, you know. Uh, my boss did X, Y, or Z, and I'm really mad. The invitation there would be um, not to focus on the boss and the boss's behavior because, A, the boss isn't there to talk about their reasons or motivation, and B, uh, they're not there to be influenced either. So uh, what we're doing is saying, okay, well, when your boss does that to you, what happens inside of you uh, and what comes up? Which parts start responding to a situation like that? Um, and how do they respond? And why do they respond that way? And that inquiry leads uh, from protective parts to the vulnerable part who's being protected. So often a kind of reactivity in, situa- in interpersonal situations is um, a kind of... Uh, reigniting of something that uh, comes from earlier experience. And you can use what's happening today as what Dick Schwartz calls a trailhead and follow that trail down to these very vulnerable parts who, it's kind of like if you don't take care of those vulnerable parts, you're living in a house where you have children locked in the basement who are crying, lonely, uh, terrified, um, uh, desperate, and you're letting them live down there 
and you're not paying any attention to them. You know, you're trying to go about your business while they're in the basement uh, suffering. And that's, a, you know, there's a cost to that. Ultimately, it's cruel. It's, um, it's disturbing. It gets all these protective parts to start behaving in ways that uh, can be extreme. And, and even though they mean well, they're very costly behaviors that, uh, that don't work well anymore when you're an adult. And, um, and we're saying, let's get those kids out of the basement. There's nothing wrong with them. They got hurt and they need to be taken care of. And you guys who've been working so hard to distract from them or soothe the body, um, don't need to do that anymore. Uh, there's a grown up here now who can, who can do that, who can take care of this child and love this child. Love is the key here. Compassion and love are, uh, you know, sort of hyphenated there. There's a, when someone has compassion, they also have love. Mm. I think you conclude in the book that shame is not useful. Um, and I maybe you are anticipating some folks arguing that it is actually sometimes uh, useful, but I, I think you don't reach that conclusion. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, that's very fair to say. And, and it's also fair to say that a lot of other people, there's a big ongoing discussion in the field of mental health. And I'd say out in the world as well, um, around whether it's important to be, to, for people to feel ashamed. And I, in general, I think I'm going against the tide when I say, no, uh, it's, it's important for people not to feel ashamed. Um, it's important for people to be able to feel guilty if they have actually transgressed. Uh, it's important for people to know the difference between uh, adaptive guilt, which is appropriate guilt. I, I did wrong, so I have to make a repair and guilt that is not deserved where, you know, you feel guilty even though you did not transgress. Uh, survivor guilt and separation guilt are two examples of guilt that can arise uh, for parentified children um, and people in who are growing up in really dysfunctional families where they feel that their, in the case of uh, survivor guilt, their happiness and success is at the expense of somebody else. In the case of separation guilt, their pursuit of normal developmental goals is at the expense of somebody else and is a transgression. And it's not, right? So it's really important for people to be able to feel guilty when they've done something wrong, to know when they haven't done something wrong, and to uh, feel I'm okay and I'm lovable and to never feel that um, they're unacceptable or that they're, um, that they're, you know, been thrown out of humanity for some feature of who they are that, uh, that somebody else criticizes. That's just not useful uh, for, for individuals. I mean, I would say that the, the feeling of shame is hardwired, as all feelings are, um, and comes from an evolutionary advantage of uh, uh, being a feeling that causes us to want to comply and stick to the group and not be different. And, that, and so that was clearly an evolutionary advantage for the, our survival 
as a species, but it's not, it came, comes at the expense of individuals being exiled for, uh, in some way, not uh, being the same as others in the group. And that actually is not useful for the individual, and it's not useful for us at this point in time, at an evolutionary time in my view, to be keeping those kinds of severe boundaries by kicking people out or othering different groups who are different because, you know, we're very uh, much more interactive in the world now. It's a small world and we have to learn to be inclusive rather than exclusive if we Mm -hmm. want to survive. Mm. Yeah. So shame is not useful in my view. Compassion uh, is the opposite of shame and compassion uh, is something that everybody has the ability to access. Mm-hmm. Well, Martha, I see that we're getting close to the top of the hour and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, although I do have many, many questions here. Is there something I haven't asked that you think is important to leave the audience with? Oh boy. Um, uh, I can't think of anything. I mean, there's a lot, the book says a lot, right? And I really thank you for being interested in it and asking questions about it. Uh, it took me uh, uh, sort of 30 years to write it in the sense mm. that it was from the beginning of my career to when I felt I could articulate all this, that I was uh, trying to figure out what was going on and wh- what makes us tick. And when I got to the place where I thought I understood that, I wanted to write it down. So um, this book is my, uh, speaks of my journey through uh, uh, years of, of being, having the privilege of being sort of guided by people into their internal lives and, and seeing what makes me tick and them tick and what we all have uh, um, in common. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's truly packed full of information. There's just, just so much in here. It's, it's a tome for sure. Um, thank you for spending some time with us today and, uh, for the work that you've done. Yeah. Thank you.